is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So that's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. I wonder how you pray for other people at church. I don't know about you, but I tend to have difficulty in this area because I normally find myself just praying for the immediate, obvious, urgent things. Someone's unwell, we pray that they get well. Someone's out of work, pray that they get work. So I either oscillate between that, the immediate, urgent, or praying prayers that are really general. Lord, be with them. Lord, comfort them. Very general. How do you pray with insight and wisdom for Christian people? Of course, uh, if we know their need, we'll know what to pray. So tell me, if your church has been just praising God and swept up with all the spiritual blessings they have in Christ, how then would you pray? How would you pray meaningfully for um, a Christian or, or, or a church which is divided along cultural or ethnic lines? How do you pray for them? How do you pray for a church um, which has an anger problem or a Christian with an anger problem um, that keeps coming out, not just at home, but amongst other believers? How do you pray meaningfully for a Christian friend at church who seems susceptible to the latest teaching? They get swayed along by whatever current of new fad, new teaching comes along. How do you pray for a fellow believer who hasn't really thought through how the good news of Jesus Christ and his lordship changes their personal relationships? Uh, they're just swept along by the current of the culture, but really it hasn't impacted how they treat their spouse or how they treat uh, their children if they have any or, or, or what it means for them at work. How would you pray for someone who's engaged in spiritual warfare, whatever that means? These are normal needs for Christians. And in fact, all the things that are listed through are in fact issues of spiritual warfare. How do you pray with insight for one another? Well, praise God that twice in Ephesians, once here and once in chapter 3, Paul models how to pray by telling us what he prays for the Ephesians. Now, I don't know if you can recall a time where someone has said, I'm praying for you, and then they've told you what they're praying, and they've told you why they're praying. Well, that's really, really helpful. It focuses the mind. Um, you know, they've got intentionality about it, and you're looking for answers to their 
prayers. Okay, well, here we get a window into the the prayer life of the Apostle Paul, and he set it out for us. And that's got to be helpful in, in teaching us how to pray for one another, doesn't it? I think it does. More than that, Paul, um, by praying and by writing out his prayers, he he alerts us to what we really need. God is teaching us here how to pray with insight for one another, insight into what our real needs really are. Okay, so let's ask for help. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have the Apostle Paul's prayers in front of us. We pray that you'd help us to learn how to pray. Please open our eyes uh, both to our needs and the needs of others, um, and also to how you might answer them. So we pray, Heavenly Father, do your work in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now if you were watching online last week, you'll recall that in the praise section, what we had was a very long sentence in the original language. Well, same here. Uh, In the one prayer, we've got one long sentence, okay, in the original language, And as with last week, we find that ideas kind of keep tumbling down upon one upon another, but it's not random. There's a logic to it. Paul begins the passage with these words, for this reason, right, which connects the praise section last week with the prayer section in this week. They've praised, and now because of that, he prays. For this reason, particularly, he says, um, um, you've got every spiritual blessing in Christ, verse, and then he says, verse 15, because I've now heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, um, I've not stopped giving thanks for you and I'm remembering you in my prayers. Now, what is his prayer? What is his prayer? We really need to take note of this because you or I might think that if someone's Going on in the Christian faith, remember he's praised them, he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love for all the saints. Well, we'd have thought that if Paul is praising them and Paul's being encouraged by these people, these people must have landed. They must be the mature ones, right? And therefore, they wouldn't need anything else, okay? Now, however, he does pray, doesn't he? He's just said, you've got every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, why is he going to pray for them if they've got every spiritual blessing in Christ? What extra thing is he hoping that they will get if they've got every spiritual blessing in Christ? That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder what he says. He says, I'm constantly in prayer for this. He's continually bringing before uh, his God and Heavenly Father these prayers. What is their need that's so important that he is constantly praying this for them? What is it? Of course, he prays to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear that phrase, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we think, does that mean Jesus isn't God? No, it doesn't mean that. Jesus himself prayed. He prayed to his God and Father. Paul is not saying Jesus isn't God. What's he saying? He's reminding us that God the Father gives, right? He gives everything to Jesus, uh, fully his son, and it's through Jesus that things come to us. So in praying to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's making us aware that actually it's the Father who's giving all good gifts 
to us. That's why he is praying to him. This is his constant, continual prayer. Therefore, it's a good prayer for us to pray for one another, isn't it? Well, what is it? What is this prayer? What does he say is our need? He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He prays that we would know God better. It's a different prayer for someone who's not yet a Christian. Then we're praying that they would know God. (laughs) Okay, Christians already know God. He's praying that they would know him better. Now, that that is a life goal, isn't it? I mean, what do you live for? Well, here is a great goal, to know God better. Uh, None of us know everything about God. Uh, God is more glorious, more compassionate, more wise, more sovereign, um, more generous, more gracious than we can grasp. But that doesn't mean that we can't grow in knowledge of him. We can. Paul's speaking about relational knowledge, not knowledge about God, knowledge of God. Um, What's this? Well, you might start going out with someone and you've got the wonderful early days when you're finding out about a new person. And that's really exciting. Uh, If you get married to them, uh, you find out more about one another. After three decades, which is my situation almost, uh, you think you know someone pretty well. But those further down the track say there's new frontiers, there's new discoveries and new challenges to face. You'll get to know people, uh, each other better. All right. Now, as great as any spouse can be getting to know them, God is in a different category. Uh, he is God <laughs> and the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's worthwhile getting to know him. And he, by God's grace, is our father as well. Of course, we already know God, not completely, not comprehensively, but we do know him truly. However, this is a prayer that we would know God more truly. Uh, we would know God better. We would know God more deeply. It's, what, it's like what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, why does he say, I want to know Christ? He already knows Christ. He says, I want to know him better, more deeply, is what he's meaning. Okay. So let me ask you the question, do you want to get to know God better? I hope the answer is yes. If it isn't, then perhaps you have a very small view of God or a distorted view of God. Perhaps you've, you're frightened of him and wary of him. Okay, and that may have to do with your own background as well. However, the God who Paul sets out, who is praised already in chapter 1, is worth getting to know. He's the one who chose you in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in him. He's the one who in love predestined you to be adopted as his son or daughter. According to his Good pleasure, his grace freely given us in the one he loves. Uh, He's the one who redeems us, gives us redemption through Christ's blood, which means the forgiveness of our sins. He's the one that lavishes upon us um, uh, grace according to his good pleasure. 
He's the one who makes known to us the mystery of God's will. You know, what God's doing in the universe. He's the one who is at the moment bringing together everything under the unity and the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God who is worth getting to know. A generous God, a wonderful God, a sovereign God, a relational God. Paul says that's our need and that's why he's praying continually that all Christians would come to know God better. And so he prays that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. Now, this isn't an additional spirit uh, to the Holy Spirit who believers already have, chapter 1, verse 13. This is a way of talking of the Holy Spirit, uh, God's Spirit, who gives us wisdom, who reveals things that we didn't know before about God, heavenly things. Uh, This isn't a a prayer for a second blessing of the Spirit, a second amazing spiritual experience. No, what is it? It's a prayer for the Spirit whom we have, for He to open the eyes of our deep selves, to open the eyes of our heart. Okay, the core of our being, our motivations, our desires, our longings, our passions, that God would open the eyes of our heart so that deep down, we would know him, that, that who God is, we would so trust and internalise and take on board at the very centre of ourselves that we would be changed from within. So Paul prays that we would know God better through God's spirit opening the eyes of our hearts. Now, to what purpose? Uh, you might think it's silly to ask to what purpose. Isn't it just enough? that we could get to know God, full stop. Yes, it is. And yet, Paul sets out his purpose, the purpose for this prayer. And in fact, he mentions three. Why does Paul tell us why he wants us to get to know God better? I take it the answer is because he knows us. He knows that we are like him. We get distracted. We get tempted. We are um, tempted to doubt, to despair, Um, to lose momentum, to give way to fear, to give way to apathy, to give way to sin. Anything that will put a handbrake on our life as Christians. And Paul's not wanting us to do that. The solution is for us to know God deeply. And he tells us why. Okay. And each purpose sheds light on our need. All right. So here's the first one. First of all, that we know our hope. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's calling you. Now, hope, what's that referring to? Is that referring to the content of heaven? No, it's not so much the content of heaven, what it will be like, more our subjective hope in God, Um, our sense that God will come good for us, come what may, our deep belief that in the end God will make true on what is promised, Uh, the phrase, my hope is in God, picks up this idea. Paul's praying that our hope would be in God. Now, through knowing him. How does knowing God mean that our hope would be in God? Well, the answer is because as we get to know God, we discover that he is dependable, he is faithful, he is reliable, he keeps his word, he is for you, he is absolutely committed to you. And therefore, if you know this, that he, the sovereign God, is like that for you, your heavenly father, 
then your hope will be in him. All Christians need this core centeredness so that we won't be shaken, so that we won't give way to despair, so that God will be our hope. This is our calling for God to be our hope. Okay, second, Paul prays that we would know God better so that we would know the wealth of God's inheritance. Verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in God's holy people. Now, what is this talking about? You might be thinking about the riches of heaven for us. Uh, That's what I thought it meant for a long time. And then I read it closely and I realised I'd been wrong. Okay, when you look closely, it's not talking about the riches of our glorious inheritance, but the riches of his glorious inheritance. God's glorious inheritance. I hadn't thought that God was going to inherit anything, but he's talking about that. He's talking about an inheritance not for his holy people, but the riches of God's inheritance in his holy people. What's this saying? It's saying that, here it is, we, the saints, those in Christ Jesus, we are God's glorious inheritance. This is absolutely staggering. I don't know whether you've ever thought about uh, fellow believers and yourselves in these terms, but because of God choosing us, redeeming us, adopting us, sealing us with the Holy Spirit, we are his possession. And, um, of course, when he removes us from earth and we stand in his presence, that is where God will gain his inheritance in the saints. So it's not just we who have an inheritance, verse 14, it's God who has one as well. And this is rich. This is so rich. And Paul's praying we'd understand this. Um, uh, Just recently, I've been going through the book of Revelation in morning devotions on our Facebook page. And the book of Revelation gives us a picture of this. There's the throne room of heaven, the crystal sea, no chaos. God and the Lamb are on the throne. Around them are four winged creatures. Around them are 24 elders standing for, representing the the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. And then around them you've got 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And then around them you've got a multitude, a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne standing in front of the Lamb and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And can you imagine the sound of that? And and then at that sound, all the angels and all the elders uh, around the throne and the four living creatures, they fall down and they worship. We, brothers and sisters, we are God's glorious inheritance. We are the people around the throne. God's inheritance, which is rich indeed, is in the saints. And Paul prays we would know how rich this is and for God. Now, why? (laughs) Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? This is a perspective which changes everything. Um, You'd value yourself a lot more if you saw yourself as part of God's rich inheritance. You know, we may be losers in other aspects of our lives. We might be tempted to despair. We might be given to discouragement. But to know that we, through Christ, are God's rich inheritance, 
This is a precious, precious truth indeed. If we believe this, think how we'd think differently of the church family. I mean, you know, here's a bunch of, yes, saved, but semi-ordinary people, you know, who might irritate you a bit, but, you know, you get on, okay. No, here are people who are precious, precious, because they are God's rich inheritance. Believe this and think how transforming it would be for our viewing how we, we meet together. We'd so much look forward to it, wouldn't we? To be with other people who are God's rich inheritance, to meet together in anticipation of that which is to come. What a great blessing that would be. You know, to believe this, to hold it deeply in our hearts, this would be transforming. Well, Paul prays we'd know God so that it would happen. How will it happen? It will happen by God's spirit answering our prayers and opening our eyes to know God better. How does that work? Well, when we value him who is on the throne as worthy of worship, then we would value each other as his inheritance. So that's the second purpose of us knowing God better. Here is the third. You ready? Paul prays that Christians would know God better so that we would know, verse 19, his incomparably great power in us who believe. Here is something new. Know God better, you'll know how powerful he is and his power at work in us. Now, I know that if you're looking at the NIV Bible, it's got the words for us. He's incomparably great power for us who believe. And yes, uh, God has shown incomparably great power for us. Uh, This is the gospel, taking our sins to the cross, raising Jesus from the dead. Uh, This is wonderful, but it changes the meaning. And the original word is in, in us. Okay, what power are we talking about? We're talking about unbelievable power. This is the same power, Paul expands this now, as the mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. It is the same power which then caused Christ to ascend into heaven and be seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion over every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. It is the same power, verse 23, which God exerted when he placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed Christ to be the head of everything. Paul prays that we would know that the same power which rose Jesus from the dead to life and which then exalted him to God's right hand and seated him there and then subjected everything under him. We don't see that yet, but he's been appointed there. And now all things are being brought unto him. It's not complete yet. That's why there's still spiritual warfare. But steadily, things are being brought under Jesus, his headship. Paul's praying that the power that achieved all of that would, well, he's saying it's at work in us. And he wants us to know it. Now, when we see that this is what Paul's saying, usually there are three reactions which come in very quick succession. Number one, amazement. Two, confusion and then disbelief. First of all, amazement. This is totally mind-blowing, isn't it? That the power that did all of that is at work in us. Then confusion. If that's the case, shouldn't church be more awesome? Um, Shouldn't we be seeing more miracles? Uh, Shouldn't there be zero sin? And then 
we think, well, then there's disbelief. Because often church isn't awesome. And we think, well, it can't be true then, can it? Brothers and sisters, it's because we find this so hard to believe that Paul prays that we would know it. How will we know it? Through the Spirit opening the eyes of our hearts to this. How will that happen? Through the Spirit helping us to know God better. Because the God whom we know is the one, yes, who has raised Jesus to life from the dead, who has exalted him to his right hand and sat him down, and then has, who has put everything under his feet. And who for? Who for? Look at verse 22. For the sake of his body, the church. The church. Okay, permission now to go and pick your eyeballs up, up off the floor 10 feet in front of you where they've popped out to. This is eye-popping, jaw-dropping, mind-blowing stuff, isn't it? Do you ever worry that you're... Um, you know, you haven't achieved the status that you, that, that, that you want, that uh, you haven't really made a name for yourself in your life, you've blown your chances, uh, that you're not in a powerful enough job, you're not treated with enough deference, uh, that you've, perhaps you feel useless. Do you ever worry that you aren't valued enough? Do you ever feel like you're being overlooked? It doesn't matter. The reason God places all things under Jesus' feet is for the sake of you, us, the church. The church, which is his body, uh, Christ's body. He is the head, but we, with all other Christian believers, are his body. This is why in Acts 9, you know, when Paul was first converted, uh, Jesus met an earlier Paul called Saul on the road to Damascus and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, that would have stopped him in his tracks because he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church, except, ah, now the penny drops. The church is Jesus' body. In persecuting the church, he's persecuting Jesus. The church is Jesus' body and he's the head of it. Come back to the question of why the church doesn't seem more awesome if it's Jesus' body, if God's power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in the church. Why isn't it more impressive? Well, how is power, the power of God, seen? Last verse. In the church being his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ah. What? Okay. <laughs> now, there's been a lot written about what Paul is meaning. I've read a lot. Let me cut to the chase for you. God gives Christ to the church and God fills Christ with his character and with his power. God continually does this. And because the church is Christ's body, Christ fills the church with God's character and God's power, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. How does God's character and power come out? Well, it comes out in God through Christ, filling us with the power, the character to engage in spiritual warfare. That sounds dramatic, doesn't it? It's the ordinary 
struggles that all Christians have against sin and evil and temptation. These are the things that are going to be unpacked in the weeks to come. Chapters 2 and 3, dealing with ethnic and cultural difference and division in the church. Chapter 4, using your gifts for the sake of the body, to to grow the body into into unity and uh, of the faith and in maturity under Christ. Chapter 4, dealing with, you know, difference and, and anger, knowing how to talk in such a way that builds up instead of tearing down. Chapter 5, letting God transform our human relationships. I mean, most people have no idea about human relationships. We stumble through, we make mess everywhere, but with Christ in them, he orders them. He teaches us how to behave. This is real power. This is power which other people see. You know, they can look at Christian families and, you know, if we're obedient to Jesus, uh, if we're letting his character shape us, if we're letting his power transform the way we relate, then it's staggering for other people to look on and say, why are they so functional? Chapter 6, you've got um, children to parents, slave to masters. Of course, chapter 5, wives to husbands. And then chapter 6, engaging in spiritual warfare. Listening in to the Apostle Paul's prayer, he's told us what we need. And because now we know what we need, all Christians need, now we know how to pray because now our eyes are open. We pray that God's Spirit would open the eyes of our inner being to know God better. Do you pray this for people? Do you pray it for God's people? I hope you do. I hope you pray it for me. Because it's by knowing God that we'll be sure about our future. Our hope will be in him. It's by knowing God that we'll understand our collective preciousness, the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. It's by knowing him that we'll we'll understand God's astounding power at work in us. Power that sees God's character, his life-giving power poured into Christ, poured into us, enabling us to live as God's people. It comes through knowing God, knowing God. Well, may the spirit of wisdom and revelation open your eyes to know God better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have this prayer written down. And we pray to you from whom all things come, you, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, would open the eyes of our hearts to know you better, more deeply, more truly, so that you would be our hope, so that we'd understand the riches of being your people, your inheritance, and so that we'd understand your power at work in us and we would live lives pleasing to you. Father, transform us, we pray, through knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.